Good evening to all of you brave people who made it out to uh, hear the lecture tonight in the, uh, uh, even though Hurricane Jean, her last uh, hurrah, is coming across us right now. Um, so our second speaker tonight will be introduced by Professor Deborah Nord, who is in the English Department and just finished two terms as the uh, Director of Women and Gender Studies. Professor Nord. Thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you to the second in a series of three lectures on biography or life writing uh, given by Hermione Lee, the Goldsmiths Chair of English Literature. That was a crash. And unfortunately, it broke the glass, the water glass. I'm going to start again. Very tricky. <laughs> I'm reproducing this sort of torrents over here. It's a great pleasure to welcome all of you to the second in a series of three lectures on biography or life writing given by Hermione Lee, the Goldsmiths Chair of English Literature and Fellow of New College at the University of Oxford. I am equally delighted to welcome Hermione Lee back to Princeton after an absence of three and a half years. The last visit, which was an extended one, when she was a guest of the English Department and the Program in the Study of Women and Gender, involved her in seminars, lectures, lunches with students, discussions with graduate students, a reading with faculty and students, and gave her the opportunity to display her uncommon versatility, graciousness, and brilliance. It's humbling enough to speak directly before the main attraction tonight, fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, the British Academy, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, companion of the British Empire, author of works Elizabeth Bowen, Philip Roth, and Willa Cather, biographer of the award-winning Virginia Woolf, one of the great literary biographies of the late 20th century. But I have the added disadvantage tonight of being the second in a series of three introducers, the first one having been Paul Muldoon, whose words last night were described by Hermione Lee as Pythonesque. And there's some, some dispute about whether this is a reference to the, uh, the madcap whimsy uh, of the comedy troupe or to the uh, agility of a reptile uh, he mentioned in his, in, his, in his words of introduction. In any case, you see my difficulty. So I will be brief and just say a bit about what I think distinguishes Hermione Lee as a biographer. Some of it we heard last night, the understanding that a life is up for grabs, fought over, invested in by various interested parties who all claim ownership of the reality and then the memory of the life in question. Battles for possession, she calls it. There is her attention to the gaps in all lives that biographers must contend with, lacunae that no biographer can fill however much he or she is tempted. The biographer must be faithful to documents, to the words of the dead subject and his or her contemporaries, but also knows that something like invention is necessary. Hermione Lee's ability to imagine and evoke with great vividness 
the look, sound, dwellings, cities, gardens, books, relationships, deaths, hats, and trousers of her subjects is extraordinary. And yet her humility and restraint as a biographer are just as striking. I am afraid of presuming, she writes in biography, the first chapter of Virginia Woolf. She can stand back from analysis that might intrude on the record of events, as she does at the end of the biography of Woolf, when she writes of the author's suicide. Indeed, she lets Wolf have the last word. What comes after this last chapter of Wolf's life, however, is a section called Biographer, in which we are reminded that the author of the life is also rooted in a particular experience and perspective. That she begins with biography and ends with biographer demonstrates her desire to underscore the artifice of her genre. She is absolutely direct in acknowledging this irresolvable pull between personal interpretation, perhaps fiction writing, and accuracy or objectivity is what shapes the biographer's craft. What also distinguishes her is the sheer delight that she takes and unfailingly communicates in reconstructing a life. We await her biography of Edith Wharton. As I told her, I am preparing lectures on the Age of Innocence for next week, and I wish I had the biography in hand. And we anticipate with great pleasure what she will say tonight in a lecture titled, Jane Austen Faints. It's a disaster. Right. Deborah, thank you very much. It's difficult up here. We're having we're having some problems, but I hope I shall resolve them. Um, thank you all very much indeed for coming out tonight. I'm I'm amazed to see anybody at all here really. Um, so I, I am really very grateful. Um, Jane Austen's novels are, I propose to you, kinds of life writing, much concerned with family plots, gossip, stories, guesswork, knowledge, assessments of human behavior, and the importance of reading people right, their histories, their motives, their secrets and desires. There's an intriguing demonstration of this, I think, in the scenes between Anne Elliot and Mrs. Smith in Austen's final, last Finnish novel, Persuasion. These scenes have been criticized for awkwardness and clumsy plotting, and it's assumed that she would have revised them if she hadn't fallen ill. But the rough edges of an author's work can be very revealing, especially an author usually as polished and meticulous as this one. The situation is this. Mrs. Smith, once Miss Hamilton, was kind to Anne when, age 14, Anne went unhappy to school after her mother's death. But Mrs. Smith is now, 12 years later, an impoverished widow, crippled with rheumatism, living in confined lodgings in Bath. Anne visits her much to the scorn of her snobbish father, Sir Walter the Baronet, and admires Mrs. Smith's capacity for making so much of the diminished thing that her life is. Mrs. Smith tells Anne about her landlady's sister, Nurse Rook, who visits Mrs. Smith and reports to her something of what's going on in the town. 
Mrs. Smith says of this offstage character, hers is a line for seeing human nature. She is sure to have something to relate that is entertaining and profitable, something that makes one know one's species better. One likes to hear what is going on. And Anne observes that she must presumably have many sickroom stories of heroism and fortitude, at which Mrs. Smith looks doubtful and says, no, they're more often stories of weakness, selfishness, and impatience. So this line for seeing human nature is realistic and uncensored. It turns out in the long second scene between Anne and Mrs. Smith that Mrs. Smith also gets her local information from a laundress and a waiter. Through her sources, Mrs. Smith has heard a rumour that Anne is likely to be soon engaged to her cousin, Mr. Elliot. Only when Anne disabuses her of this idea does Mrs. Smith expose to her Mr. Elliot's real character. His heartless, designing, a wary, cold-blooded being set on advancing himself financially and socially through marriage and plotting to inherit the baronetcy by marrying Anne. And as proof of this... Mrs. Smith shows Anne a 10-year-old letter dated 1803, which is very rude about Anne's father. Anne is shocked by this, but she also feels that she shouldn't be reading private correspondence. Mrs. Smith explains how she has heard about Mr. Elliot's plot via Nurse Rook, whom she calls my historian who has got it from the wife of a Colonel Wallace, who is Mr. Elliot's friend. The stream is as good as at first. The little rubbish it collects in the turnings is easily moved away. Once Anne accepts this representation of Mr. Elliot, as it's called, Mrs. Smith then goes on and provides even more dramatic evidence of his past villainy. It turns out he was responsible for ruining Mrs. Smith's late husband, and she has letters to prove it. Awkwardly, as this slab of information is bumped into the novel, it makes a vivid version of biography. Following the trail of the story and clearing away the rubbish that's accrued to it through gossip and rumour, using written evidence to prove a point, drawing on whatever sources of information you can get, building up a representation of the character, these are the biographer's jobs. And these scenes invoke, too, the moral reservations so often attached to biography, dislike of gossip, distrust of low sources of information, squeamishness about reading private correspondence, suspecting witnesses of having a private agenda. So the Mrs. Smith episode in Persuasion makes a good entry point for some thoughts about the telling of Jane Austen's life story, which has had to negotiate a number of turnings in the stream and a fair amount of accumulated rubbish. The best known fact about Jane Austen's posthumous life is that her story was guarded and shaped by her family. As Marilyn Butler put it in a review of some 1990s Austen biographies to which I'll return, for the first century at least after her death, the main qualification for the task of being Jane Austen's biographer was to be a relative. Uh, I've given you on the handout, if you've all got the handout, there's some spares lying down there if you miss it, but uh, I think it's the last sheet on the handout. There's a little bibliography which will come in useful now because I'm just going to run through because you're going to need, it's a bit boring to do this, but you're going to need this to be in the picture. the the way in which this evolved. First, there was her brother Henry Austin's biographical notice published in the posthumous 1818 edition of Northanger Abbey and Persuasion. Then there was her niece Anna Lefroy's Recollections of Aunt Jane of 1864 and her other niece Caroline Austin's memoir, My Aunt Jane Austen, of 1867, which remained unpublished until 1952 and was followed by her reminiscences written in the 1870s. 
Then there was her nephew James Edward Austin Lee's A Memoir of Jane Austen of 1870, and her great-niece, daughter of her niece Anna, Fanny Lefroy's Family History from the 1880s. There was also, I haven't put that on the list, but there was also a, a rather bad 1884 selection of her letters by Lord Brayburn, who was the son of Austin's, another Austin niece, Fanny Knight, which was dedicated to Queen Victoria. Early in the 20th century, there was her great-nephew and great-great-nephew, William and Richard Austin Lee's Jane Austen, Her Life and Letters of 1913, on which the Austen scholar and editor Deirdre Le Fay would base her Jane Austen, A Family Record, first published in 1989 and revised in 2004. And these different sources were also all made use of in R.W. Chapman's compilation, Jane Austen, Facts and Problems, in 1948. Uh, there's a very good and revealing comparison of all these uh, family versions by Catherine Sutherland in her edition of some of these memoirs of 2002, in which she notes that they're constantly making rival claims to, to the more authentic portrait of Jane Austen. Deirdre Le Fay edited a fine new collection of Jane Austen's letters in 1995, but one feature of the family's lingering control over Austen's body of work is that numerous letters or parts of letters, the sort of evidence Mrs. Smith was able to flourish in front of Anne Elliot, were destroyed by Cassandra. Austen's sister obliterated the evidence of Jane Austen's responses to the crucial events in her life, such as the sudden death of Cassandra's fiancé in, in 1797, the family's move from Steventon, Austen's possible romantic involvements. It's long been argued that the effect of this culling of Cassandra's is, as one of Austen's biographers, Claire Tomlin, puts it, to leave the impression that her sister was dedicated to trivia, the letters rattle on, sometimes almost like a comedian's patter. Not much feeling, warmth, or sorrow has been allowed through. You have to keep reminding yourself how little they represent of her real life, how much they are an edited and contrived version. Now, there's a counter-argument to that, a slightly more recent one, which says that the letters, rather than, rather than being disparaged by comparison with the novels, should be attended to for what they do reveal and for the texture of domestic life that they present. Or perhaps, as Catherine Sutherland suggests, there never was a confiding correspondence to hold back. It's just that biographies are suspicious of gaps and silences. Apart from the letters, most of the evidence biographers have to draw on is family anecdote and memoir, some written, as you've already perceived from this, from this bibliography, long after the event. If only Jane Austen had kept a journal, as Mr. Tilney in Northanger Abbey assumes Catherine Morland must certainly do, like all other young ladies of her class, instead of which her biographers have had to make do with stories and legends handed down and repeated, certainly a muddied stream. Biographers respond according to their different agendas to the family's construction, a very successful one, of a version of Jane Austen which held sway for many years. Carol Shields, who wrote a sympathetic short uh, biography of, of Austen, says, immediately after Jane Austen's death, she was entombed in veneration. The Austen family's Jane Austen was not a professional writer. She was a home-loving daughter, sister, and aunt, and above all, a good Christian. Her gravestone inscription prepared by her brothers remarked on the benevolence of her heart, the sweetness of her temperament, the extraordinary endowment of her mind, but did not mention her books. 
Her brother Henry's biographical notice of 1818 emphasized that she wrote with no hope of fame or profit, and that in public she turned away from any allusion to the character of an authoress. Henry Austin drew attention to her, quote, perfect placidity of temper, the kindness of her wit, her tranquility, her complete lack of interest in fame or money, her reading of moral writers, and her being thoroughly religious and devout. Though the 1870 memoir by her nephew James Austin Lee gave a livelier impression and allowed that Austin could sometimes be funny about her neighbours, her nephew, by then an elderly clergyman, was at pains to add that she was as far as possible from being censorious or satirical. It's often been noticed that Jane Austen was becoming Victorianized, and the memoir characterizes her above all as a shining light in her own home, rather like another Victorian heroine, uh, Dickens' Esther Summerson in Bleak House. This is the memoir. She was a humble, believing Christian. Her life had been passed in the performance of home duties and the cultivation of domestic affections without any self-seeking or craving after applause. And in this memoir, whatever made her a writer is, is presented as quite separate from, the, the, as it were, the real part of her life, the rest of her life. Hers was a mind well-balanced on a basis of good sense, sweetened by an affectionate heart and regulated by fixed principles, so that she was to be distinguished from many other amiable and sensible women only by that peculiar genius which shines out clearly enough in her works, but of which a biographer can make little use. And then it goes on at the end to say how when illness struck her, she patiently readied herself for death. One Victorian reviewer of the memoir asked, might we not recognize her officially as Dear Aunt Jane? A recent feminist critic, Clara Tewitt, comments grimly, we might and we did. The family story fed into versions of Jane Austen, which have been in contention now for well over 100 years. Austen's studies, editing, criticism, biography, social history, are now as conflicted and oppositional as the original accounts of her were tranquil and benign. As Deirdre Lynch, a critic who specializes in the Austen Wars, observes, a customary method of establishing one's credentials as a reader of Austen has been to suggest that others simply will insist on liking her in inappropriate ways. But the, the peculiarity of the Austin Wars is that although the different versions of her can be seen to be very much of their time, a late Victorian Jane Austen, a wartime Jane Austen, a post-60s feminist Jane Austen, they don't supersede one another. They seem to coexist and jostle for position. It's as though the body of this author, which her relatives tried so hard to sanctify, is continually being torn into parts and put back together again. The family version lent itself easily to an English heritage Jane Austen, benign heroine of an idyllic, rural, golden-aged England, the saintly and serene maiden aunt, making the most of her sheltered, uneventful life, her wit and wisdom always on the side of morality, restraint, and good sense. This Tory Jane Austen, beloved of the Janeites and the Jane Austen Society, and cherished by 19th and early 20th century admirers such as Kipling, Macaulay, and Lord David Cecil, has been 
been ferociously attacked, but it hasn't gone away. It gets into the Austin tourist industry and the hugely popular Jane Austen movies, even though rural England of the late 18th century has long since ceased to be described by historians as the clean, green pastoral of the nostalgic film adaptations, all bonnets and carriages and parks and starched pinnies and Colin Firth and Alan Rickman striding about in ruffled shirts and shiny boots. Not that I've got anything against that in itself, you know, but that's what it's like. Recent critics and biographers are more likely to describe Austin's landscape and social context in terms of instability, exploitation, provincial discontent, rural crime, social climbing, and imperial profiteering. And the Austin family, as in Marilyn Butler's phrase, a family of meritocrats struggling to get ahead in a competitive money-driven society. Ever since the psychologist D.W. Harding's crucial scrutiny essay of 1940 on Austin's regulated hatred and the American critic Marvin Mudrick's 1952 book on her defensive use of irony, she has been read by some as expressing anger and resentment in her fiction against a life of constriction. That idea of a resentful double life kept down by a family censorship in which Austen was herself complicit has done a great deal to demolish the benign Jane Austen of the Janeites. So has a quite different severe historical account of Austen, pioneered by Marilyn Butler in the 1970s, not as a secretly resentful misfit, but as a hardline Tory purveyor of establishment values, summarised by the critics who disagree with Butler on this, such as Alistair Duckworth and John Mee, as providing arms for the bourgeois thought police and endorsing a repressive middle-class ideology of manners, an anti-Jacobin novelist writing in defence of patriarchal authority and the country house which provided one of its most potent symbols. For all this, that English heritage Jane Austen still lives on, as, and not just in the films, as in the glossy pages, for instance, of Susan Watkins's 1996 Thames and Hudson picture book called Jane Austen in Style, the cover of which shows a grand country house in Kent and a, with a little inset medallion, the dance scene starring Jennifer Ely from the BBC production of Pride and Prejudice. Watkins' introduction promises that in these pages... From the vantage point of a particular English country gentlewoman, a journey is made through the society and surroundings of a group of people of unsurpassed elegance and refinement. That version of Austen was at its peak in the early 20th century, when, as Deirdre Lynch puts it, images of the late 18th century countryside connoted a harmonious refuge from the modern world between 1918 and 1945. But still, the remarkable thing about this genteel country house, Jane Austen, is its persistence. Critics wanting to construct a more robust, less sanctified Austin have to push very hard against the genteel, nostalgic version. At the same time that Austin mania, as it's often called, movies, coffee table books, mugs, T-shirts, guided tours of Chawton and so on, has vigorously persisted, there's an equally vigorous ongoing proliferation of rival and quarrelsome critical, bibliographical and historical readings. And Claudia Johnson, who's here tonight, has written very well about this in Austin Cults and Cultures. Editors of Austin's work are starting to undo the received shape of the oeuvre established by R.W. Chapman from the 1920s onwards in his editions of the novels, the letters, and the minor works. 
Feminist critics of Austen, including Claudia Johnson, have for some time been questioning the gendered public-private ascription of spheres of activity, which commits Austen to the realm of domestic minutiae and to a local apolitical treatment of the little bit two inches wide of ivory, her much-quoted description of her own scope and materials. It's long been argued that Jane Austen was deeply involved in the major ideological debates of her time. An influential feminist critic, Terry Castle, dared to suggest in 1995 that Jane Austen's closest and most passionate relationship was with her sister, Cassandra, The piece was published in the London Review of Books under the title, Was Jane Austen Gay? and was greeted with a storm of abuse from Jane's devotees as though Castle had somehow polluted the shrine. And she's written about the astounding response that that there was to this. I mean, it was a bit of a flag-waving exercise by the editor of the London Review of Books because actually the piece was supposed to be called, I think, Sister, Sister. Um, But this had this rather, you know... um, outrageous title. Um, Then there's another stream, uh, which is the post-colonial criticism of Jane Austen, very powerful stream of criticism, beginning with Edward Said on Jane Austen and Empire in 1989, uh, who who notes and proposes that studies of Austen must or should involve an interrogation of the concept of English and of the classical canon of English literature. It's argued by such critics, such as Clara Tewitt, that Austen's function has been as an entropic model of the backward look to the green core, of England as the green core. Biography tends to lag behind critical debate. But these hotly contested readings of Jane Austen, many of which, of course, involve biographical disputes, have begun to make their way into the telling of Jane Austen's life story. That story and its versions demonstrate very vividly the argument of the American feminist critic Carolyn Heilbrunn, the argument that for a long time biographies of women who don't fit into the standard models have been difficult to write and have been written, as she puts it, under the constraints of acceptable discussion. Even if the family version of Jane Austen's life is resisted or demolished, her story raises particular challenges for the biographer. Halbrun noted in 1988 that it was still difficult to find a way of writing about the choices and pain of women who did not make a man the centre of their lives. If the virtuous and benign made an art or the thwarted and bitter made an art is refused as the working model, then what other shapes can this story take? Since the 1960s, biographies of Austen have tended to place the emphasis on the frustrations of her familial position of dependency, her long servitude to her hypochondriacal mother, her cloistered relationship with Cassandra, the loneliness, even possibly the desperation of her middle age, her realism and her misanthropy. The gap between the pious self-effacement of the family version and the mordant wit and energetic, worldly-wise brilliance of the novels is frequently noted. And the idealised dear Aunt Jane has been undermined by pointing to the notable eruptions of viciousness or grimness in the letters, notoriously, for instance, on Mrs. Hall of Sherborne, who was brought to bed yesterday of a dead child some weeks before she expected, owing to a fright, I suppose she happened unawares to look at her husband. (laughs) 
One of the most dramatic moments in the life and one of the places where all Austen's biographers have to decide what to do with the handed down family versions is the scene in which Jane Austen faints. The story is told, sticking closely to the family reports and without much questioning of them, by Deirdre Le Fay in Jane Austen, A Family Record. And uh, this is the one that's not on your sheet, actually, so you get to it later. Uh, Le Fay, I'll, I'll just list her sources to show you how complicated this is. Le Fay's sources for this story are, this goes back to your bibliography, Fanny Lefroy's Unpublished Family History of the Early 1880s, who cites her mother Anna's report, a letter from Caroline Austen to James Edward Austen Lee of 1869, which was reprinted in Chapman's Jane Austen Facts and Problems, the 1817 memoir, the 1913 life, and the letters from Jane to Cassandra early in 1801. Okay, this is the basic story, and I, did, I didn't put the basic story on your hand up because I didn't want to blur the basic story with the, the, the later biographical versions of it. Jane, as Deirdre Le Fay always calls her, had been away from home, the rectory at Steventon in Hampshire, where she was born and had lived all her 25 years, staying at Ibthorpe with her friend Martha Lloyd, whose sister Mary was married to one Austin brother, James, and who would later marry another Austin brother, Frank. I hope you're with me. Cassandra was also away from home, staying at Godmersham Park in Kent, home of their distant cousins, the wealthy knights, who had adopted Jane's brother, Edward. If you take any one moment in Jane Austen's life, you immediately, it's like pulling a string. You pull up this thick strand of family connections. Uh, the story, as pieced together by Le Fay, is as follows. While Jane was away, the latent strain of impetuosity in the Austens suddenly manifested itself in her father. And family tradition says that as she and Martha arrived from Ibthorpe early in December 1800, they were met in the rectory hall by Mrs. Austin, who greeted them with, Well, girls, it's all settled. We've decided to leave Steventon in such a week and go to Bath. And to Jane, the shock of this intelligence was so great that she fainted away. Mary Lloyd, who was also present to greet her sister, remembered that Jane was greatly distressed. No letters to Cassandra survive for the month of December 1800, which suggests that she destroyed those in which Jane gave vent to feelings of grief and perhaps even resentment at being so suddenly uprooted from her childhood home without any prior consultation by her parents as to her own opinions in the matter. Cassandra, too, had presumably been left in ignorance of this decision. And then Deirdre Le Fay quotes Fanny Lefroy, saying, My aunt was very sorry to leave her native home, as I have heard my mother relate. That's the end of the Fanny Lefroy quote, and then Deirdre Le Fay picks up the story. To exchange permanently the homely but comfortable rectory and the fields and woodlands of Hampshire for a tall, narrow house in one of Bath's stone-paved streets must have been a dismaying prospect to Jane. So hasty, indeed, did Mr. Austen's decision appear to the Lee Perrots, that's another set of characters, Austen's maternal uncle and his wife, that they suspected the reason to be a growing attachment between Jane and William Digweed, one of the four brothers at Steventon Manor House. There is not the slightest evidence of this supposition in Jane's letters. It seems most probable that Mr. Austen's age and Mrs. Austen's continuing ill health were the deciding factors for retirement. Le Fay goes on, by January 1801, Jane had recovered her composure and the six letters written in the new year are in her usual style of cheerful irony. 
the plans for the retirement to Bath naturally figure largely in these letters. And Lefay quotes Austin. I get more and more reconciled to the idea of our removal. It must not be generally known, however, that I am not sacrificing a great deal in quitting the country, or I can expect to inspire no tenderness, no interest in those we leave behind. That's the basic story. Jane Austen's saint seems to provide a clue to many aspects of her life, and not surprisingly, it has been a test case for biographers. It seems to be a key moment, and I think for the following reasons. It exposes Jane Austen's dependent position as a woman of 25, unable to make her own choices. It has implications for her relations with her mother, who could be read if you chose to read it like this, in, in this anecdote, as bludgeoning and insensitive. It's, it's very hard not to immediately think of Mrs. Bennet uh, when you read, you know, well, girls, it's all settled. <laughs> um, uh, it suggests to uh, the kind of quick, intense, and sensitive responses which we may want to identify as a mark of genius. It provides a rare sight of Jane Austen's emotions expressing themselves in a physical gesture it may imply that the habits of a rooted, settled life made the decision to move a great shock. And beyond that, it's extremely interesting because, as I've tried to suggest, it makes us aware of the family circle, especially women, who were her witnesses and interpreters, and, and also of the difficulty of piecing together the story from the gaps and silences in her letters and from all this handed-down evidence. It seems to offer an intimate moment for biographers to make the most of, since, as John Wiltshire puts it in a recent book, Recreating Jane Austen, biography's appeal to readers is inseparable from the dream of possession of and union with the subject. The faint is a challenge for readers of Austen's life and works who see her as a rational, ironic, conservative, Johnsonian satirist, fainting, after all, is one of many symptoms of extreme, even alarming sensibility or affectation of sensibility, which Austen, if read as an ironist, was so concerned to satirise or to regulate in her fiction. Fainting was one of the much-noted symptoms of dangerous extremes of hysteria and hypochondria. See Marianne Dashwood. Devotees who praise Austen for her Augustan wit and wisdom express some anxieties over the faint, a leading academic Jainite of the early 20th century, A.C. Bradley, takes the gallant, protective tone often used by her male admirers in this period, but also sees the faint as uncharacteristic. He says, we learn that when suddenly told of her father's decision to leave Steventon, their home in the country, and reside in Bath, she fainted away a fact which I mentioned with some compunction, for she would have been horrified by the idea that this proof of her sensibility, in quotes, would someday be made public. I'm interested in fainted away there, which both Bradley and uh, Le Fay use. They've got it from um, the 1913 life. Fainted away seems somehow more elegant than fainted, um, more sensitive somehow. Um, that rational controlled Jane Austen, who would have been embarrassed by showing her sensibility in public, has been countered by writers who have become interested in the bodily life in her writing, such as John Wiltshire in Jane Austen and the Body. Wiltshire doesn't mention Jane Austen's faint, but it could be the perfect example of what he calls illness as a language for what is being repressed, of a suppressed or restricted emotional life, finding its only possible outlet in a dramatic act of bodily weakness. 
The interpretation of the fate will depend on what kind of Austen is being purveyed. No biographer of Jane Austen leaves out the faint, but all of them have to decide what to do with the story. So this is now finally where I want to come on to some of these examples, really just to show you the different ways in which these narratives work around uh, this episode, starting with uh, The Life of um, Jane Austen by John Halperin in 1984. Halperin's life has been described by Bruce Stovall, who's a critic of Jane Austen biographers, as consumed by smouldering resentment at her lot, incapable of love and cynical about personal relationships. And certainly his biography was setting out to disrupt previous readings of her life. He makes the most of this drama, and he writes, as you will see, as if he's sort of got inside information, as if he's got inside knowledge of her feelings drawn from the novels. So this is it. When they entered the rectory, Mrs. Austin greeted them in the hall with the news that the family would soon be leaving Steventon and moving to Bath. Jane fainted. She was not a fainter. The emotional disturbance must have been acute. Beneath her celebrated composure, she was high-strung, and she was upset. It is significant that for, for December 1800, there are no letters extant bearing silent testimony, perhaps, to the novelist's agitated state of mind. Cassandra, as we know, later destroyed the letters she thought too personally revealing. If Jane wrote at all, it must have been in great anguish. In this same month, the novelist turned 25. She had lived during these years only at Steventon. Did her feelings resemble those of Marianne Dashwood upon leaving Norland, or those of Anne Elliot upon leaving Kellynch? We shall never know. What we do know is that Steventon had been everything to Jane Austen and she never liked Bath. Anne Elliot persisted in a very determined, though silent, disinclination for Bath. All Jane's roots were at Steventon. The novelist was exceedingly unhappy upon hearing the news, says the author of the memoir, a man not given to exaggeration. There can be no doubt that she was unhappy. Indeed, she was to remain dissatisfied for a good many years. A decade of rootlessness was about to begin. This was a watershed event in her life. Um, I think this is, this is sort of how not to do it. Um, I mean, you've already picked up on the biographer's strategic uses of must-have and perhaps uh, the use of rhetorical questions, which is always a splendid way of you know, getting away with it. The setting of unprovable hypotheses, we shall never know, against resounding conclusions, there can be no doubt. Indeed, I love that, indeed, now we're there. And notice that sort of rhetorical heightening of facts. I'm very struck by, in this same month, you know, in this same month she turned, as if, you know, that month she turned 25 would have not had the same kind of resonance. Um, and notice the desire to turn a life, which all biographers have, to turn the shape of a life into dramatic peaks. This was it. This was the key moment. This was a watershed event in her life. And notice, obviously, you will already have noticed the ease with which evidence is adduced from the novels uh, and to the tendency to trust the family version as put together by Chapman and, and Deirdre Le Fay, though he goes on later to dismiss this rumour that the Austin parents were trying to get her away from William Digweed. This passage actually comes in a section in the uh, chapter in, in Halperin's biography called The Treacherous Years, in which Halperin argues that bitterness and dislocations clouded these dark years of 1801 to 1804, for which there are um, any letters and that adversity blanketed in energy and inspiration. So he adopts this view which is 
it's pretty much the standard view that Jane Austen was acting out the feelings that she gave to some of her heroines and that to be uprooted from her home was to be stopped in her creative flow. There are more recent readings of um, Jane Austen's authorial career which have disputed this standard chronology that R.W. Chapman set out of two big bursts of publishing activity with this long fallow gap in between. There's, a, there's an interest now in thinking more about the minor works and the unfinished works and suggesting that perhaps there was a lot of experimental work going on in that middle period, um, some of which we may not know about. And so this version would not be acceptable uh, to such critics of, of Austen. Let's go on to the next one, which is Park Honan's uh, Jane Austen, Her Life. I mean, titles are also revealing, aren't they? Um, I like The Life of Jane Austen by John Halperin. That's, you know, this is the one. Um, Park Honan's a little bit more uh, tentative. Um, okay, I'll read this too. After they came into the rectory from a walk one day, Mrs. Austin greeted the two young women with, well, girls, it's all settled. We have decided to leave Steventon and go to Bath. At this news, Jane Austen fainted, so Anna Lefroy heard. Cassandra was absent when the decision was made, and Mary Austin found Jane quite alone and greatly distressed. But a younger daughter's tears were insignificant. Aunt Perrot knew or imagined why Jane was distressed. The family had to move, that lady felt, because of a romantic attachment between Jane and a digweed man. What could one expect? But dear Jane would forget her suitor when she was living at Axford Buildings in Bath, to which there would be no need to bring either Mr. Austin's heavy books or Jane's pianoforte. I've cut a bit now. In leaving Steventon, she was being uprooted and crushed. She was being taken from a small community which she knew well, from people whose words, actions, and looks in repose or at work she cherished. There could be no compensation in a jangling, crowded town. Her sense of place was part of her confidence, and that was being torn from her. One could be sad in leaving a place because connections are cut too easily. Other people part from one too readily, and friendships are exposed as less significant than one had hoped, and perhaps as insignificant as they really are. But the precious intimacy of talk and feeling she had with Martha Lloyd or Catherine Big or Mrs. Lefroy was rare, and it was cruel to leave. A loss may be a gain, but how does one happily endure without love, friendship, peace, and delight? She meant to be cheerful, but un until well into January 1801, she found little to allay what Mary called her distress. Um, it's interesting how different this is, isn't it? It's, it's, it's more careful with the source material, yes. It's, it's placing the faint more carefully in, um, uh, in terms of how the sources have come down to us. Uh, but the, the tactic here seems to be to, to, to be writing a novel, to be writing some kind of 18th century novel, perhaps a novel by Jane Austen, um, in which some of the facts are given to us uh, from the imagined viewpoint of Aunt Perrot. Uh, and then the whole episode provides an excuse for a general meditation on uprootings, which, which hover in this curious tone, which seems to be almost pastiche. I mean, it isn't quite, but, it, but it's sort of getting there, isn't it? It's, I find it very peculiar, um, because I'm not quite sure why he's chosen uh, to extrapolate that whole passage on uprootings um, at this point. But clearly he feels he needs to do something with it. Uh, two British Lives of Jane Austen came out in 1997, one by Claire Tomalin and one by David Noakes. And there was actually an interesting struggle for... Uh, 
you know, uh, public supremacy between these two uh, concurrent lives, which was resoundingly won by Claire Tomlin. Uh, both give us a troubling and troubled Austin, placed in a discordant and dangerous late 18th century English landscape and belonging to a family with some dubious secrets and connections. But the treatment they give of her life and of her faint could hardly be more different, though they are using pretty much the same materials and evidence. Claire Tomlin's biography of Jane Austen is interested in the story of a woman's life and how to tell it. And she asks questions like these. What effect would being fostered by a wet nurse have on a baby girl? Might it create a lifelong defensiveness and an emotional distance between mother and child? What would be the toughening results of being sent away to school very young? What would it feel like to be a teenage girl starting to menstruate, surrounded by young boys thundering about the house? Is it anachronistic for us to feel pity for the young wives of Austin's circle, pregnant immediately after marriage and then every year, and often dying in childbirth? Austin did. Poor animal, she will be worn out before she is 30, she wrote of her niece Anna Lefroy, pregnant again in 1816, immediately after the birth of her first child. Women's feelings about the pleasures of dancing or the imprisoning effects of bad rainy weather are constantly conjectured. Tomalin sees, as others have, conflict and exasperation with the strong, stubborn mother. She casts some shadow of the quasi-marital closeness with Cassandra, who is viewed as somber and prim and responsible for hurrying them both into middle age. Uh, Tomalin finds the story of their wearing identical bonnets in their mid-twenties depressing. Um, the key word, there's always a key word in any biography. It starts to come, biographers aren't aware that they do this often, but it starts to resound through the biography and you begin to recognize that the key word in this biography is tough, which, re, which, which recurs quite often. This often is a witty, ebullient girl taking a series of knocks. And this is not the standard male version of the embittered old maid who longed above all else to be married. Here Jane Austen is imagined as discovering that spinsterhood could be a form of freedom. The worst pressures for her are those of family life, lack of independence and privacy, endless domestic commitments, and feeling like an awkward parcel at the grander homes of her wealthier brothers. Tomlin's version of the faint deals carefully with the possible motives of the Austin parents and with the sources. Um, she's, she's very careful about you know, where the story comes from. Uh, I'll, I'll come in on the third paragraph once she's set it up. She strained to keep up the easy, gossipy note in her letters, but the jokes to Cass often feel forced. It must not be generally known, however, that I am not sacrificing a great deal in quitting the country, or I can expect to inspire no tenderness, no interest in those we leave behind. There is a briskness and brightness in Jane's letters at this time, much keeping up of spirits, but no enthusiasm. She is doing what she has to do, making the best of a situation over which she has no control, watching the breaking up of everything familiar, fitting in with plans in which she has no say, losing what she loves for the prospect of an urban life, no centre, no peace, and the loss of an infinite number of things hard to list, impossible to explain. And she looks ahead over the writerly silence that she believes falls um, in these subsequent years and constructs a whole theory of depression. I'll just read this, this next paragraph. The ejection from Steventon made severe practical difficulties for her. It also depressed her deeply enough to disable her as a writer. Depression may be set off when a bad experience is repeated, and it seems likely that this is what happened here. 
First as an infant, then as a child of seven, Jane had been sent away from home, frightening and unpleasant experiences over which she had no control. Through her writing, she was developing a world of imagination in which she controlled everything that happened. She went on to create young women somewhat like herself, but whose perceptions and judgments were shown to matter, who were able to influence their own fate significantly. To remove her from Steventon would destroy the delicate balance she had worked out. So there was both a perfectly good rational basis for wanting to be at home and a residue of the terrors of infancy and childhood about banishment and exile ready to spring out when they threatened again. That this new exile was brought about by the same people as before, her parents, against whom she could neither rebel or complain, must have made it worse. Her account in Mansfield Park of Fanny's permanent low spirits after a childhood trauma and her very different account in Sense and Sensibility of Marianne unable to combat her misery and willing herself into a serious illness shows how well she understood depression. And however she dealt with and controlled her own, it struck at the core of her being. It interfered directly with her power to write. Now, it's a highly plausible version, it seems to me, and made all the more so by the sympathetic narrative of a woman's life, which I've praised for you, which, which surrounds it, and by very cunning little touches, like the use of Cass and Jane to suggest inwardness, those biographical hooks for plausibility, which one's now alert to, seems likely, must have, and the reasonable demonstration of the links between the work and the life. This is not the same as just simply you know, spinning between Jane Jane Austen's feelings and Anne Elliot's feelings. This is a much more careful way of saying, well, look, she knew what this felt like. She could demonstrate this uh, in her works. Um, but however reasonable and plausible this is, it is just as constructed and hypothetical, just as much of a figment as the dear Jane of the family memoir. But this one, like many other 20th century biographies, is dependent on our accepting post-Freudian psychoanalytical terms, loss of control, the repeating of childhood trauma, willing oneself into illness for an 18th century writer. And you might want to to, uh, this might be something we could talk about, about whether you think this is a viable thing to do. Almost all biographies, when the subject undergoes pain or suffering, look for someone to blame. And David Noakes, whose combative life came out in the same year as Claire Tomalin's, puts the blame firmly on the Austins, whom he vilifies as a crew of snobbish, greedy, competitive entrepreneurs. Their habit of suppressing awkward or embarrassing facts, such as Jane's mad brother George, sent away from home as an infant and never afterwards referred to, or Jane's aunt, Mrs. Lee Perrett, standing trial for grand larceny. Their idealization of Jane Austen's posthumous reputation has had, he says, its inevitable effect on subsequent biographies. Noakes sets out to undercut this policy of censorship and to present a more alarming Jane Austen. He sees her as deeply unromantic, malevolently resentful of the privations of her life, pleasure-loving and malicious. This Jane Austen is more interested in amusement and self-advancement than in romance. Far from contentedly living a quiet rural life, she couldn't wait to get away from it and longed for wealth, luxury and amusement. So she's Mary Crawford rather than Fanny Price. But Noakes also wants us to see her as complicated and challenging, torn between self-punishment and self-conceit and dangerously subversive of the pieties and moralities of her time. When she began to be known as an author and visited London, Austen expressed anxiety at the thought of being shown off as an exhibit. 
If I am a wild beast, I cannot help it, she wrote to Cassandra from London in 1813. Noakes, who loves this quotation and frequently quotes it out of context, calls her rebellious, satirical, and wild. So the key word uh, for this biography is wild. As all literary biographies must, he has to find a way of understanding the work's relation to the life, and he does it by arguing that Austin uses the fiction as a, almost as a form of flagellation, as a form of punishment. So she invents, for instance, a self-mortifying heroine, Fanny Price, as a way of rebuking her own desire for fame, success, and entertainment. Noakes is very fierce and sardonic about the faint which he uses as a weapon to beat all previous Austen biographers round the head with. And this is how he starts describing it. Jane Austen's fainting fit appears as a crucial traumatic event in all the traditional accounts of her life. Yet the authority for this story is not strong, and we might pause to query why it has found such widespread acceptance. Um, note fainting fit. Uh, implicitly deriding the way that it's being talked up. It's sort of at the opposite end of the biographical spectrum from fainted away. Uh, he goes on to doubt the reliability of Caroline Austin's account, written at second hand so long after the event, and its embellishment many years later in the memoir where the faint is introduced. And he notes how eager subsequent biographers have been to accept this account. Austin's biographers have been happy to repeat a story which accords so well with their own views of how she ought to have felt. Imagine her anguish to be torn away from the native Hampshire village that she loved and dragged away against her will to Bath, that fashionably soulless resort of quacks, hacks, thieves, conspirators, and hypochondriacs. There is a tendency for them to wax indignant on her behalf at such a forced removal. And he quotes Deirdre Lefebvre, and Park Honan and R.W. Chapman on her distress. All these biographers, he adds, note a significant gap in the sequence of letters between Jane and Cassandra at this time and draw similar conclusions from him. He has a different interpretation of the gap. Quite possibly, the inadmissible sentiments which Cassandra chose to suppress were those of an unseemly excitement. And he quotes the letter to Cassandra of January 1801, which Lefay and Tomalin and the others quote, um, saying, uh, here we find Jane confessing the need to conceal her true feelings. It must not be generally known that I am not sacrificing a great deal in quitting the country, or I can expect to inspire no tenderness, no interest in those we leave behind. Noakes reads this differently. This is not the language of someone who feels crushed, grief-stricken, or incarcerated. For years, Jane had dreamt of a larger world where she might savour the luxury of well-proportioned rooms or indulge a taste for wild coach rides. On her visit to Bath two summers earlier, she had thrown herself with some energy into the excitement of gala concerts, fireworks, shopping, and scandal. Happiness may be just as destructive of literary dedication as unhappiness. There's the great biographical generalisation again. And it is equally possible to suggest that it was an abundance of amusements rather than the absence of inspiration that prevented her from writing. Later members of the Austin family preferred to remember Jane Austen as a woman of affecting swoons and tactful silences. So the fainting fit has now developed into affecting swoons. But the evidence of her writing suggests a stronger instinct for running mad than for fainting. As she wrote on another occasion, if I am a wild beast, I cannot help it. 
perhaps the silence of the bath years, which biographers have used, says Noakes, to confirm their sense of the feelings of unhappiness and displacement which she must have experienced in these busy cities, was actually due to the fact that this Jane Austen, a good time girl, was having such a busy and social urban life that she had no time for writing. Well, this is more exciting, but just as hypothetical as the versions which construct depression from the gaps and silences. It provides an intriguing example of quite contrary interpretations of a life from much the same data. Read alongside each other and set in the context of the long and continuing battle for possession of the posthumous body of Jane Austen, these two biographies provide a riveting example of biography as a relativist process of conjecture, invention, intuition, and the manipulation of the evidence. They also point to the mystery of lives, which Austin, for all her penetrating analytical abilities and comic control, often invokes. John Wiltshire notes dryly, we actually know much less about Jane Austen than her biographers would have us believe. And that resistance to being known is something the novelist herself was interested in. Mrs. Smith can produce the evidence even from dubious lower-class sources of Mr. Elliot's villainy and can confirm Anne's doubts about him. Proof, witness, demonstration seem incontrovertible. But what isn't so clearly explained is, for instance, why she takes so long to give Anne this information or what her motives are or what kind of pleasure Anne gets out of visiting her. One of the things Austen's novels do is to make us understand how difficult it is to know other people right through. As Fanny Price exclaims to Mary Crawford in the shrubbery in Mansfield Park, though she isn't really listening, how incomprehensible the human mind is and how peculiarly past finding out. Thank you. I assume you'll take a few questions tonight. If everybody doesn't want to tear off and beat the rain, yes. I need a mic, actually, because I'm finding the acoustics in this room quite hard. And I want to just unpack uh, or ask a question uh, to unpack. I still can't hear a word. I I thought that was wonderful. (laughs) And I want to (laughs) uh, um, ask something which just to help me unpack a little bit what strikes me as the canniness of your centering on the fainting. Um, And uh, it has to do with the problem of other minds. And it seems to me at least two things go on with biographers, even the one, even the, uh, the negative reading of the fainting incident, the, the last biographer, focusing on this incident. One is, um, at least, uh, I mean, there's a sort of Austin envy, envy of the Austin narrator, it would seem to me, with the biographers, right? That they, that she can slip in and out with, with enormous, with, well, induplicable ease uh, into the consciousness of other minds. Yes. Um, so that the fainting incident seems to me to do two things. One, and I'm just wondering if this seems true to you, one is that, at least at that moment, we know what's going on in Jane Austen's mind, nothing. Right, just as at that one moment she's fainted, she's lost consciousness. There is no consciousness. Well, I'm just saying that that's what they're propping themselves on, right, as a possibility. The second is almost like an act of aggression against her, like this consciousness capacious enough to understand its own other minds within at least the context of its fiction. Do, do, well, yeah. do you, I mean, there's, there, there are a lot of questions there. Uh, one is, I think that first point is absolutely brilliant, which is, and it's, I should have said this right at the beginning, which is 
which is if you are faced with a writer like Jane Austen and you are writing her life, do you try and compete with her writing? It's a similar question which comes up, of course, with, you know, if you're writing about Proust or Virginia Woolf, you know, of course you don't try and compete. You would be foolish to do so. But it, you are very conscious of your own writing style uh, while you're writing about these people. And it's a great mistake to write a Laurentian biography of Lawrence. Um, you know, you can all think of examples, a Tolstoyan biography of Tolstoy. Uh, but, there, but the desire to compete is very strong, which of course leads on to your other point, which is, is biography always a form of, if it's literary biography, so a writer is writing about a writer. Is it always a form of contest? I mean, I know certainly that, that, that novelists are often extremely hostile to biography um, and, and regard biography as, as their enemy, um, not just because they want to keep their lives private. It's not just Ted Hughes saying, I hope each one of us owns the fact of, of his, or, his or her life. Uh, but there is a real sense of, of, of a competition between two kinds of narrative because, of course, what you're doing as a biographer is trying to unpick the very things that the novelist has welded together and, and, and often, most often tried to conceal or, you know, depersonalize. So there is, yes, I think that's a very, very shrewd thing. There is a, there's a kind of war going on here. Yeah, yeah no, no, it's, it's true. Yes, yeah, I need, but I need the, yeah, you've got it. Okay. <laughs> um, is this okay? Can you hear me now? Go on, I'll tell uh, you if uh, I Okay, um, I too wanted to ask about the faint as this kind of exemplary incident. And I would want to argue maybe contra Jeff that it's not so much an absence of mind, but just an absence, just absence to core almost. And it seems, I mean, do you find it somehow strange that the exemplary thing for Austin is not like a heart, but like it's not being there at all? Because as you, as you construct this, um, this whole, con uh, all of the biograph biographical constructs are these tissues of novelizing uh, fantasy about her. So is there something kind of uniquely Austinian about, about this? Um, about the fact that people take the faint as the crucial episode? Yes, well, there isn't another, I mean, you'll tell me, but I don't think that there's another physical episode. We don't see her eating soup. We don't see her getting dressed. We don't see her going to the lavatory. We don't, you know, we don't see her, we see her dying. Uh, but even then there's a kind of controversy about what, what that illness was. Yeah, in fact, we see her hiding the papers. I mean, the physical things we know about Jane Austen is she used to hide the papers under the table when other people came in and there was a squeaky door, or, yes, that, that warned oh, her. The only time we really in. get a, a description of her body is when it's a corpse. When it's a corpse, yes. yes. Uh, it would be yes. But I think people fasten on the faint because it's such a godsend. You know, you're writing a biography of Jane. Oh, at last, a moment when something actually happens. You know, that sort of seems to be a dramatic crisis. Indeed, it was a watershed event. I mean, it's I'm not blaming these people for for kind of getting onto it because it's so great to have a moment where you can actually create a drama. You know, unlike say, the life of Byron where, you know, the, the, the difficulty is, is not to overdo it. Um, <laughs> everybody wants to leave, but maybe we've got time for a couple, a couple more. Yeah, yeah. I also want to thank you. I think it was really marvelous. I can't hear. I'm so sorry. No, it's me. Can you hear me now? Yeah, it's it so, yeah. yeah, I also want to thank you. I think it was a really marvelous performance. Thank I'm you. a Jane Austen fan, and I have read every biography. But I wonder why have not been made more of this uh, statement, if I'm a wild beast. 
I can't help it, which is a fact which she wrote to Cassandra, then the fainting. That tells a lot about her character. Say it again. Why has not made more about this statement? I'm a wild beast. Oh, I'm a wild beast. If well, I can help you, it. you've read David Noakes. I mean, there's plenty about it in there. Uh, she, she is clearly, uh, um, she's talking about being, at the, being as if at the zoo, on show at the zoo, I think. You know, if I'm, if I'm, is that right? She's a wild, she's, she's, she's known, she's going to start being, you know, public. Uh, the general tendency of the memoirs, the family memoirs, is that this was anathema to her. I mean, there's kind of Charlotte Bronte story here, too, isn't there? It's a, you know, it's the classic woman writing, oh no, she couldn't have wanted to be famous. You know? and make money. Um, uh, you know, much better to keep it in your drawer, like Emily Dickinson. But uh, So when she writes to Cassandra, if I'm a wild beast, I can, presumably what she literally means is, well, if they're going to show me off as if I'm a wild animal in captivity, there's nothing I can do about it, but I'd sort of prefer not to. But David Noakes, who is in the business of turning these statements on their head, says, oh, she wants to be, you know, she feels like a wild beast. She's a great rampager and, and pioneer. And actually, it raises this tremendously interesting question of to what extent can you reinterpret the things that people have said about their own lives? I mean, to what extent is the biographer entitled? It seems to me the biographer... Uh, is allowed to do anything. I mean, it's a very irresponsible craft, which is why one has got to be onto them, you know, and one has got to say, hang on, I'm not sure that this is... You've got to notice those must-haves and perhapses and those rhetorical questions, because it nearly always means they're fudging and they don't... You know, it's, I think, meaning I don't, I don't know. Uh, but there are moments, it seems to me, where, you know, I mean, you can say things about people they wouldn't have said about themselves. Otherwise, what's the point of, of doing it? Uh, and this brings on, this leads on to the whole question about Freudian, you know, I mean, the, the, the Claire Tomlin life of Jane Austen is a very interesting example, and I think a very successful one, of a post-Freudian psychoanalytical uh, reading of a life in which childhood trauma uh, becomes the basis for the interpretation. I mean, she's not a sort of heavy-duty Freudian like Leon Edel, um, but, but it's certainly, um, you know, it is psychoanalytical terminology that, she, that she's using, almost sometimes subliminally. And I think one can perfectly well say, well, you know, does she have the right... Do we believe that's okay? Has she, I suppose, do we buy it? You know, has she persuaded us is the question. I'm, I'm not, I don't know whether anybody's got str- as strong feelings about these biographies as I do or whether you, you also have chosen between them or... Anyway. Any other questions? No? Thank you very much. Professor Lee's concluding lecture will be again in Makash 50, not this room, tomorrow night.